Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Once Upon a Terror. I'm your host, Adelina Hill, and I have a very exciting announcement. I'm a huge fan of the podcast Scare Me to Sleep by Shelby Scott, and I hadn't been checking my emails and found a lovely acceptance letter of a story that I wrote called Hotel Marin. This story will be read on her podcast, and I will put a link in the show notes when the episode releases. This week's theme is called what is that? Things that aren't exactly human and shouldn't look human, but do. I have three terror tales for you this evening, so let's start the show. Our first story is called My Husband is Blind and I Wouldn't Have It Any Other Way by Reddit user Lightning Nations. So, once upon a time, If you came to me with a button that gave Derek his sight back, I wouldn't press it, and neither would he. Not in a million years. Our lives are way too perfect and cute as it is, honestly. For example, we have this game where I creep up on him like some sort of predator. Derek could hear a penny drop from across a crowded bar. So whenever I'm stalking him, the slightest floorboard creak makes his ears perk up. Then he'll crane his neck to the side and say, Morning, Charlotte. I still get the better of him, though. Now and again, I'll go full stealth mode and slip my hands around his waist from behind. A little surprise attack hug. Then he'll always pretend to sulk for a minute or so before kissing me. It's adorable. There's also the fringe benefits, like not needing to dress up. Not going into detail, but my toxic ex like making a big stink about that. He said he made the effort, so I should too. Never mind the fact that for him, getting ready meant a quick glance in the mirror. You can imagine how much it bugged me. But now there's times I don't even bother with an outfit at all. It's bliss. There's the only downside, and you're putting a gun against my head here, is Derek is a light sleeper. Every minute sound keeps him awake. If Mr. and Mrs. Mumble over in number 12 get in a late night squabble, he sits up and listens to one of his audiobooks until they gas themselves out. That said, there's times having a spouse with a built-in alarm system come in useful. Like last night. We'd gone to bed after a spirited round of Marco Polo ended us with us in bed as usual. Not long after midnight, Derek sat bolt upright and said, Someone's outside. I kicked on my slippers, shuffled over to the window, and pulled back the curtain. Beneath me, the kitchen window banged lightly in the breeze. It's nothing, honey. I left the window open. Go back to sleep. No, there's a burglar downstairs. I can hear clicks. While Derek fumbled for the baseball bat stashed under the bed, I swallowed a gulp and said, Why don't you wait here while I fuck that? I'm about to go all daredevil on this asshole. 
A wave of black panic rushed over me. Seeing no other choice, I molted out of my human disguise. The discarded skin suit flopped on the floor. Then in a movement so swift, Derek wouldn't have seen it if he could see. My stinger shot forward like a dart penetrating his stomach. The muscles in my legs, all eight of them, twanged wildly. Not good. The toxins didn't immediately take hold. Instead, my husband gulped the air like a drowning man while my upper limbs closed around him in an intimate embrace. Don't worry, Char, he said lazily, quivering as I lay him flat against the bed. I'll protect you. A runner of drool leaked from the corner of his mouth. I know, honey. I know. Unencumbered by my disguise, I raced towards the outer landing, scuttling across the wall besides the stairs, over the ceiling, soundlessly traveling with sequential contractions on my limbs. Downstairs, a sickening stench of dead bugs wafted out from the kitchen. My nausea cranked up a notch. First, the toxins didn't kick in immediately. Now this. What the hell was going on? I slipped through the door. Up ahead, in the darkness, a tall blonde man leaned against the center island, drinking from a cup of coffee. Charlotte, he nodded, eyes gleaming in the gloom. Ryan, you're as looking monstrous as ever. What are you doing here? My voice sounded thin and uncertain, scared. Heard you got married. Thought I'd pop by and say congratulations. I would have sent a letter, but, you know, you ghosted me. That's sweet, he smirked. I circled the outer edge of the room, each limb striking the tied floor in succession. So, does he know? Ryan asked, nodding at the wedding picture mounted against the sidewall. Know what? Air hissed through his thin lips, a series of rapid clicks. All you know about those funny little quirks of yours, the way you hog the bed sheets, or how you binge watch the dumb reality show. Love Island. Yeah, Love Island. And there was one more thing. What was it again? He pretended to concentrate. Oh yeah, that you're a secretly a giant spider monster? Did you drop that bombshell on the poor bastard yet? You know, it never came up. Fighting the dry cramp seizing my throat, I said, Why are you really here? You wound me, Char. I honestly just stopped by to say congrats, and there's no hard feelings about how things ended. Fantastic! You can leave the same way you arrived. With a casual expression, he finished his coffee, tossed the empty mug in the sink, and started in the direction of the window. He paused his back to me. Although, I did travel a long way to get here, and I'm absolutely famished. My insides squirmed. Maybe I'll grab a quick snack, like a chunk of your visually impaired boy toy. What do you think he would miss less? An arm or a leg? From across the room, he opened his mouth and let out a series of rapid clicks. Curds of foam splashed across my face as we stood there, motionless, a showdown. No preference? Let's go arm, then. And for dessert, I'll suck out his eye jelly. He doesn't need it. I flew at him in rage, and the split second it took me to cross the room, Ryan's body elongated hideously, the spine splitting into segments, from invisible slits along his forearms, razor-sharp green appendages flicked out like switchblades, while mandibles extended through the, his mouth like a blooming flower. Within seconds, his face became a rubber Halloween mask stretched taunt over a skull two sizes too big. Before, that effortless transformation irritated me. Now, I was terrified. Those forelegs sliced the air once, twice, at the very last second. I dodged by leaping onto the ceiling with the flex of my legs. 
Ryan looked up, eyes as yellow as candle flames, before charging into the hall, mandibles clicking away. I raced after him, still upside down. An awful bolt of terror struck me as I pictured Ryan killing me, then leaving the body for Derek to uncover. My fear and rage cranked up a notch. I needed to move. Fast. As the creature started towards the stairs, I flexed the muscles in my underside. Nothing happened. What an awful time for a block. I tensed my entire body. Soon, spools of web shot forward like party streamers, coating Ryan's legs. Those webs stretched out elongating as he scurried past the top step, only to get yanked back into the downstairs landing as if pulled by a bungee cord. The bastard crashed against the side table with a heavy thud. A porcelain lamp fell to the ground and shattered while landscaping panting slid off the walls. After riding himself, Ryan slashed through the webbing, which brought me enough time to move into position and let my stinger swing down. Aware of what was happening, he stabbed upwards at my midsection. The spines pierced my exoskeleton, but he couldn't yank them loose because the barbs became tangled with my insides. This left my stinger free to penetrate his thorax again and again. Ten injections made his body go limp. I'd only planned on pumping him full of toxins, but then my muscles suddenly contracted. A loud cry forced its way through my throat. Once so loud, a conscious Derek would have heard it from miles away. There came this intense, tingly sensation, and then my entire world came crashing down. I, the next morning, Derek wandered into the kitchen, later than usual. I kept one hand against my bandaged midsection as he grabbed two headache tablets from the cabinet. I think I'm coming down with something, he said as he filled a glass of water, his voice tired and groggy. Even without me uttering a single word, his head perked up. Is everything okay? You're shaking. Quickly, he crossed the room, covering my cheek with fierce little kisses. Above our heads, Ryan's corpse lay cocooned inside a web. What's that sound? Derek asked. I glanced up. A portion of webbing covering the thorax went up and down, pulsating rhythmically. Less than six hours after our encounter, and it had almost reached bursting point. This point me in a difficult position. After finishing my coffee, I took a deep breath, laced my hands with Derek's and sighed. So you know how we always talked about having kids? Well, that certainly sent chills down my spine. Hope you're not afraid of spiders or your wives if you have one. Our next story is called He's Outside and He Wants In by Reddit user Marcy. It's nice to gaze out the window until something stares back. Years ago, I witnessed something I shouldn't have. For the sake of discretion, I will adopt the name Sarah for this post, although it doesn't really matter. I was born and raised in a small town in Germany, where exactly is irrelevant. I am certain that what is happening isn't just limited to me or my country, which is why I had decided to make this post. For some context, I live alone with nothing but my loving grandma and our dog. We live in a small apartment consisting of my grandma's bedroom, my room, a larger living room, a very small kitchen, and even a smaller bathroom. This will be important later as I detail what exactly is happening. Furthermore, important to understand is that our apartment is built with a hallway-type system, where you have one long, thin hallway with the entrance on one end and the small bathroom at the other. Four doorways leading to the remaining rooms I have listed prior. The living room also has a door leading to a decently sized balcony. 
The balcony can be overseen through a very large triple window setup we had installed recently, courtesy of our landlord. Especially at night, half the living room would be now cast in a dark blue shadow mixed from both moonlight and the night itself. It was the home I grew up in, with a beautiful view out of every window and only a handful of morally questionable neighbors to irritate me. I was happy here until precisely two years ago. Two years ago, June 2021, I was awoken from my safe and deep sleep when I heard a weird noise coming from my window. Now we are on the second level of our building, and while we do have a tree behind our house, it's way too far away for any window to disturb us. I was, for obvious reasons, confused and irritated, but didn't think much of it at first. However, I personally struggle with keeping up on my hydration on a serious medical level. So whenever I wake up, I have this unquenchable desire for some water or fruit juice, anything to stop my stomach from aching. Feeling the pain once again, I decided to quickly go through our hallway in the kitchen to fix myself a quick drink before heading back to bed. At night, our hallway always unsettled me. Sure, it had the glorious beam of light coming from our hallway lamp to protect me, but the switch was literally on the other end of the hallway. There was something off about this hallway at night. Not necessarily the darkness, either. Due to my grandma being claustrophobic, we leave pretty much all the doors open. Walking through our hallway just makes you feel exposed. There's a door providing a corner to hide behind every two steps. Brave as I was, I carried on, getting to the kitchen and pouring myself a nice cold glass of water. And there it was again. The noise. A tapping of some kind. I wanted to chalk it off as some animal. Maybe a bird having interests in our windows. But I got curious. This leads me to making the biggest mistake of my life. I decided to listen for the tapping, trying to pinpoint the exact origin of the noise. The living room. Being brave as always, I quickly turned on the hallway lights then peeked into the living room, only for my heart to almost stop. Outside, on the balcony, a tall, slim figure with a massive disturbing grin observed me. He stood there, his head leaning to one side like that of a puppy, after he saw that I noticed him. I was paralyzed by fear when his grin grew larger, and he slowly pressed himself against the window, making more of his physical features more clearer. He seemed humanoid in form, having a slender human-like torso. He had two wide, thin shoulders leaning to two extremely long and thin arms. His legs seemed to mirror the forms of his arms abnormally long and slender. His neck seemed almost human in a disturbing way, while his head was anything but human. He had this almost cartoon-like oversized grin with massive teeth, gray eyes with clearly visible veins bulging out of his face, and a heavily scarred nose that reminded me of Chris Walker from Outlast. In retrospect, you couldn't reasonably blame me for thinking I was just dreaming or hallucinating. However, there was something off. I wanted to go the child's route, storm my grandmother's room, and cry myself out about the freshly discovered monster. But I didn't dare look away from it. With some courage, I turned to face the direction my grandma's room was in, then quickly turned back to whatever this thing was. He slowly lifted one of his arms, revealing a long, spindly hand that honestly reminded me more of a spider than of any human appendage. The fact that his fingers were adorned by long, yellowish fingernails did not help. He lifted his finger against the glass window, tapping three times before pointing at me. He then pointed in the direction of my grandma's room, shushing at me. He tapped three times again.
He then, leaving some kind of black mud on the window, I passed out and fell unconscious shortly after. When I woke up, I was in the local hospital, surrounded by doctors, nurses, and my grandma. A tube was connected to my arm, slowly pumping blood into my veins. I tried to explain what happened, but the doctors quickly brushed it off as the delusions and hallucinations of a dehydrated mind. I was given medication and allowed back home after enough fluid had been pumped into me. I was almost inclined to believe the doctor's explanation on what I saw, but when we returned home, I saw that the black mud was still on the window just like it was when I passed out. This made me wary, and for good reason. I never forgot that tapping of that tapping noise. It felt distinct and threatening. He tapped three times. And my first encounter with him was two years ago. Ever since, I see him stalk me constantly some way or another. I find claw marks on random wooden furniture. Get random goosebumps whenever passing the living room and constantly feeling like I'm being watched by something. For the last two years, this mud man, as I've come to call him, has been stalking me in ways no human could. I find tiny drops of black mud in my closet and occasionally see a shape similar to his in the corner of my eye. I have tried to do research on this entity, but all I got were results from the Slender Man and the Gross Man, which is an ancient German folktale about a tall, slender figure that kidnaps children. No one wants to believe me, thinking I just have some brain trauma or unsolved delusion since I'm passed out. I have no ways to find out what's going on or how to defend myself, and we are getting closer to June, the month I first saw the mud man. I'm afraid. The last few months, we repeatedly found deep claw marks and drops of black mud on our windows and balcony door. My grandmother believes this to be some sort of animal. She doesn't believe my story, and neither does she show any interest in the mud. But due to being scared that it's a burglar, I at least man- managed to convince her to repeatedly swap out locks. I don't think that will be enough. We are closing in on the third tap. The madman wants inside, and I doubt I'll be able to stop him. I'm spending this night wary of my surroundings to type down this post to warn you all, to inspire you to prepare yourself before he arrives, and I'm certain that he will. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but eventually he will. I can hear him clawing at the lock, tapping on the windows. Never investigate. Do not let him in. You may wish me luck for a remainder of my time, but I don't suppose it will be of any use. He's here. Soon. What a mess. Keep your windows clean. And if you see mud, pray it's just bird poop. This next story is called Bed and Breakfast, 1858, by Reddit user $2 Lechuga. Again, I pray none of your female friends or your wives are spiders. I've always been a fan of history. What can I say? I like hearing the stories about the times. 
the spirit of them. Every time my teacher sent an assignment home from school about talking to family members who've seen some time period, I would practically bounce off the walls. I love it all, every aspect of it, from documenting everything to hearing the stories themselves. I've always gravitated towards a particular family member, my grandfather, Daniel. When I was a really little kid, he was about 80 to 85, stooped low from years of hunching, clutching onto his cane like his life depended on it. He was always quiet. My mom and my aunts always dawned on him, constantly telling any outside of the family that he was the best father, best role model, best everything. But I didn't really see it. He was just silent whenever I came into the room. Sometimes I would play next to him, attempting to break him out of his shell. But he always averted his gaze from mine, old person shakes dominating his demeanor. Still, when I asked questions about his life from the 1930s to the 80s, he would always answer. His stories were always entertaining, to say the least. He told me a bit about his father, my great-grandfather, Peter, who died before I was born. How he grew up in London, eventually moved to America, fell in love with a woman and had kids. How he watched the wars, how he was lucky enough to dodge the draft for Vietnam because of something. He never did tell me what. He died when I turned 13. It was a suicide. He downed his sleeping pills, drank a half bottle of vodka, kicked the bucket right next to my grandmother, Alice. She was a no-nonsense type of woman. Washed my mouth out with soap once for saying damn in the kitchen in front of her. But I'd never seen her so solemn at a funeral. She didn't exactly cry, but I caught her out of the corner of my eyes, wiping tears away with a proper crisp black handkerchief. He killed himself the night of Valentine's Day. They had a picnic that day, same as every year. About a week later, Alice decided to clean out his old study. I guess in a half-hearted attempt to forget the betrayal Daniel forced on her. Dozens and dozens of full boxes of documents, records, letters, and newspaper clippings were generously dumped into our attic. Locked away by my mother, who'd seen a black widow spider up there once and forbade me from ever looking up there in case that the spider had other ideas for us. So everything sat, creaking and collapsing under the weight of years passing by, and soon I turned 22, freshly graduated out of college. My mother had invited me over to help her pack up. Alice was long gone. I was grown up, and she decided that she would start spending her pre-golden years over in a condo by the ocean. Hey, I respect the hustle. I would want to get away from the town of buttfuck nowhere, too. Fake name if it isn't obvious. So I came over to the house around noon today and began to work. Things were going well. We managed to pack all of her clothes in the span of about 20 minutes, started stacking books and trinkets she had lying around the house, and placing them gently in boxes next to the front door. Soon we were done. We only needed to pack her personal belongings, and the movers would handle the furniture, the appliances, and everything else. But somehow my mind wandered into the attic, to what was in the attic, so as my mother sat down to rest on the couch, propping her feet up and dozing off easily, I snagged the attic key from the vase she had hidden in eight years ago and sneakily pulled the attic's ladder down. Despite the fact that nobody had been up there in at least eight years, there wasn't much in the way of a foreboding, unforgiving, loud sound emanating from the ladder's rope that would give away what I was up to. In fact, it was like it also went out of its way to make sure I could get away with my investigation, like it too wanted me to uncover the secrets left behind by my grandfather. I wish now that I didn't. The attic was damp, and that was never a good sign. I inwardly groaned because I knew some of the papers and boxes were already gone. 
Humidity liked to crawl into the confines of papers, warping and bloating them, making them illegible and hard to even pick up, let alone to read. But even from where I stood, I could see that quite a few of the initial boxes actually intact. Set on top of Alice's old antique dining table, she never wanted us to throw out. And on the small stack of boxes sat a journal. It was definitely dilapidated, but it wasn't really too destroyed, even for its age. And from there, I couldn't see that it was old. Way too old for me to look at comfortably, but it also seemed preserved. Like someone was trying to take care of it. Something didn't seem right. I figured it was okay to take a peek. I mean, I love history, and this seemed to be important to my family's records. So I delicately opened the hardback cover and immediately realized that the handwriting was different than any one of my family's. It was loopy, quite fancy, and the word choice, diction, and spelling suggested that it was uh, the writer was British. Okay, made sense. Daniel's father, my great-grandfather, Peter, was British, explained a bit. The writing started normally, most letters to Daniel, who was a fully grown adult at the time, asking him about his life like he had been asked himself. I could tell that things were tense between Peter and Daniel, and perhaps that was why Daniel never seemed to keep pictures of his family around the house like Alice did with hers. There was some sort of huge falling out back in the 60s, and both Peter and Daniel never seemed to recover. Everything was written in about the span of two months, but the journal was completely full. Like Peter had so much to say. So I planted my butt on the dusty canvas-covered seat and began to read. To Daniel. I have so much I desire to say to you, but I am at last of my days, and though I wish you would come to visit, perhaps it is best that you do not. I have a story I would like to tell you, something that happened to me in 1858. I was a young man at the time, perhaps 21. A friend, George, and myself had decided to visit Whitechapel for the winter season to see our families. I was not married to Florence at the time, but had been courting, and I missed her terribly, so the trip had been needed. When we travelled, the weather had grown so horrible, to the point where ice on the bridges turned into spikes, and wind blew them into the ground at full force. It became dangerous, and we were forced to reside in a bed and breakfast for a few nights. It was unusual, to say the least. I had frequented Whitechapel for years, and I had never seen it before. It was cosy, quite large, homey and warm. George and I were immensely thankful for the accommodation, and I could tell that this would be our favourite bed and breakfast yet. It was clean, well-kept, and as we shook the snow and sludge from our coats, tramping the ice from our boots on the pristine flooring, a woman descended the staircase to greet us. She was also unusual, just like her abode. She wore a black, a classic morning dress donned with a black shawl, her raven hair masked on her head, and on the crowns of her hairline sat a circle of fine red rubies. She sat politely at us, and her wearing couplessly smitten without hearing a word. "'Welcome to my inn, gentlemen. My lady is Lady Amelia.' and I am the governess here. I have beds to offer you, if you can pay, of course. Lady, forgive me, for I was not thinking of your mother then. It was like Amelia had gripped my mind with claws and kept it close to her heart without ever saying a word. Before either of us realized, we had paid for a week's stay. Thank you very much, sirs. Before I show you through your rooms, I would like to state that there are three rules I have for my affairs. The first is that I do not establish personal relationships with my tenants. I hope that is understandable. Oh, very, George whispered, licking his lips once as he stared at her. Amelia's eyes were captivating, but there was something wrong. It was like she was looking at us with desire, with hunger. Like she was assessing us and our sizes, but not with benevolent intent. I can't imagine wanting to bed tenants like us. 
Her mouth had twisted into a ghost of a smile, pulling the shawl around her arms a little tighter, and I could have sworn that I saw something. George was much too entranced, too tempted by lust, but I could not stop repeating what it was that I saw in my mind. Something in her hair moved. It had appeared of an arachnid's leg, segmented and furry, as it pulled itself into an elaborate mask she spotted on her head. I suppose it though itself as far too exposed, and it occurred so quickly that I had no idea at the moment what to even begin thinking. Such a fine sense of humour you have. My second rule is that I mustn't be disturbed past nine. When that clock rings true, my door will be locked, and you'll have no way of reaching me until morning. That rule struck me as unusual, as well. What sort of governess refrains from assisting her tenants, especially those who pay to stay? It seemed as though she was usually all humanly restraint possible from ever establishing trust with us. A pinprick of awareness snaked through my head. As soon as I was able to listen to her honored word, a little cleared. Lastly, I expect you both to live up to your commitments. You paid for a week, and for a week you shall stay. No more, no less. There was something wrong, indeed. Her words were delivered kindly, but there was a threatening in her nature. She had just let us know that we were not allowed to leave until the week was out. Amelia clapped her hands twice, and a servant came darting out from the kitchen. Her eyes were covered in a dirty rag, her hands wringing in worry. Josphilia, take these fine gentlemen to their rooms. Breakfast will be served at nine. Josphilia nodded, hurriedly and practically dragged us up the stairs. The rooms were a stately sort, and there seemed to be nothing out of place, nothing of worry at all. But Josphilia pulled me aside as George flopped into bed, swaddled himself with the sheets as he drifted into a deep slumber. Please leave. Leave now. The door down the hall clicked shut as she whispered. What? Why? I demanded, but as she shook her head fervently. Please listen to me. You must leave. Your friend is much too far gone, but you have a chance. Think of your family. That gave me a pause. My family? Who did this servant think I was? But I was inexplicably drawn to the mental age of my darling Florence, my wife, and you, my dear Daniel. How you were waiting for me at our summer home, wondering with your bright eyes when I would come home to see you once again. Please go, Josphilia whimpered, pushing her damaged hands against my polished chest, and I glanced downward. I noticed that she was missing fingertips. Three out of five of the fingers on each hand were shortened artificially or gone entirely. As I looked closer, it was as if a veil was lifted from her, from my sight, and I could finally understand the morbid realization tugging at me from the moment I'd set foot in the abode. Parts of her were missing, like they had been taken out of her with nothing left behind. She had puncture marks all down and through her leg and neck, and the dirty rag was stained with rusty brown blood, like her eyes had been taken too. She had little to no hair, several large clumps missing, the scalp of furious red and pulsing with pus and blood, like something had feasted on her skull. She wore rags as if they were a dress, walking in it with a pronounced limp, gaunt and emaciated like she had no opportunity to eat in weeks. She had no interest in you. You can still walk free, lest you change your mind, Josphilia cried, desperately just as George sat upright in bed. Please, just... I pushed her slightly to the side as George volleyed himself out of the maid bed. His eyes were glassy white as he shrieked bloody murder. It was as if he were set alight with flame. He danced and breathed as if his skin were being burned as he awoke, throwing himself in the door of our room before breaking it down with impossible strength. Arachne, let me free! Sow your many withered fields with my ruby-red blood, George screamed as he vaulted towards Amelia's door. You set my heart alight, you beautiful thing. I have nothing more to lose, nothing left to give you except my very soul. It was as if he were under a trance, cast with an incurable spell, and as he forced open the door to Amelia's room, I was helpless. 
Helpless to run, I could not bear to run without George. I was forced to watch, to watch and listen, as my dear friend toppled onto the woman's floor. Amelia was topless, her corset flung to the floor for the night as she prepared for bed. She was incredibly curvy, shapely, and I felt the tips of my ears and cheek bloom with colour as I witnessed her. But it brought Florence to the forefront of my mind, believing that there is no room in my heart for this wicked seductress, and that it seemed to break my curse entirely. She had been brushing her hair, long hair that touched the back of her knees, but it was as if her hair was alive. It throbbed and shivered with movement, and I could only stare at the rubies of her circuit blanked. As Amelia looked down upon George, her eyes saddened with pity before she uttered a tiny, Oh, again. Then I could only watch, as Drasphelia screamed, when the spider atop Amelia's head swallowed her face with its strong pierces. Soon the neck, the torso, the waist, the legs were all ingested, as if they were never there at all. The only thing that remained was a shadowy silhouette of a strangely furry black widow spider, lunging itself towards George. It was impossibly huge, standing at well over nine feet tall, and each thud of the hairy feet against the floor felt like a miniature earthquake. What the hell is that? I shouted as it grabbed George up, releasing an unearthly demonic screech. It tossed him into the air, his lifeless body snatched by the jaws of the unholy thing, before his body exploded with force, blood and gore showering both Drasphelia and I. George broke in half, never blinking, breathing, only releasing a small and weak groan, before the spider began to eat him alive. Please follow me, sir, Drasphelia went on as she grabbed for my hands. She wrenched towards me, the staircase with amazing strength, followed on my heels as we descended, and she practically threw me out of the small abode. She stayed still in the doorway, hands on the threshold, as if she were attempting to drag herself out with me. Never return to this place. You are mocked by the curse of Arachne, and if you dare to search for her, everything, everyone you've ever held dear will perish. She will know, Drosphelia warned tearfully, pulling up her rag from over her poor eyes to rub them without much conscious thought. I realized that they were not missing, not gone, like some other parts of her. No, they were poisoned, resembling running eggs as her left eye ran of the acidic tears. They were red, blue, purple so incredibly infected that it was a wonder that they had not just fallen out of her skull entirely. Please, just forget. Forget what happened. Forget you came here, and forget Lady Amelia. I must do the same. I must forget Lady Amelia, Daniel. You should know that woman is the devil. She is evil, and she will stop at nothing to find you. I hope you can forgive me some day. But I was curious. The curiosity with mystery of it all. It ate me alive, and I doomed you. Doomed your family, your descendants, I only hope God can properly judge me for what I've done. Arachne is the devil, and she will stop at nothing to find you and your family, just like she found me. Holy shit, I'm typing out everything. I read it about ten minutes ago, and I'm still in shock. I expected something different, like, I don't know, a falling out, an argument, or something. Peter did eventually go looking for more information, according to some library slips in the 1920s. He wrote some of his findings in the journal, but at that point, his handwriting had deteriorated so much with age and madness that it's impossible to read. All I can make out is the name Arachne, Goddess, Bloodline, and Daniel. It's so strange. What did Daniel have to do with all of this? He never went on the trip, and only Peter came out. Did he tell his family what horrors he'd seen in searching for Arachne cause a chain reaction? But the real kicker was when I picked up the journal to put it on the table. A photograph and a letter came tumbling out from somewhere within the notes, hitting the floor with a soft hiss. As I picked up the photograph, cocking my head a little, I realized what I was looking at. A soft-faced woman with dark, intense eyes shrouded herself in a shawl. Covering a morning dress, a small, evil smile quirked up her face as she fa- faced the lens. 
Beside her was what I can only assume was the original bed and breakfast. And the back of the photo only stated, Bed and breakfast, 1858, in Peter's loopy slanting handwriting. And the, red, and the letter reads, Dear Daniel, I was incredibly saddened to hear the death of your father, Peter. He was a good man, a committed family man. There aren't many of those in the world anymore. He visited me once with a friend. They both had shown up for dinner. I hope you'll do the same. I'm located in Whitechapel, London. You should visit me and bring your family. You'll never be amiss at the bed and breakfast, I assure you. I would love to save your company. Yours truly, Lady Amelia. February 14th, 2015. Well, I wasn't really planning on all these stories to um, have spiders in them. Um, the theme was supposed to be more like non-human, nonsensical stuff, but I guess the spiders will do too, because they're, they're creepy. So I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you again to Shelby Scott for producing my story or for soon to be producing it. I can't wait to hear it. Thank you guys. I enjoyed making this episode. All right. Have a good evening. If you have any stories that you want to submit, submit them to Once Upon a Terror, no spaces, no caps, at Outlook.com. I'll see you next week. Good night.